Right. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is uh, Reverend Walson Thampu, former principal of St. Stephen's College, Delhi. He's a well-known orator, champion of human rights, and a civil society activist. He has authored over a dozen books on key issues. The latest one is titled Beyond Religion, and it has the backdrop of the communalization of the state in India. It is published by Pippa Ran Books UK. Written in over 14 chapters and over 300 pages, the book is an argument for transcending conflictual religiosity in the interest of the sanctity of life and dignity of the human person. Let me quote a few lines from the book. To play God is to assume the role of God, rejecting the essence of God. Otherwise, it would not be playing God, but being God. Playing God excludes being co-workers with God, affirming in practice the divine attributes of love, truth, rationality, justice, and compassion in the world as God's co-workers is the working principle of genuine spirituality. Social spirituality is its authentic and dynamic mode. The task of social spirituality is to affirm intrinsic human worth whenever, wherever, whenever it is threatened and wherever it is degraded. This involves a preferential option for the poor. Socially, the poor is the other. Preferential option for the poor is the polar opposite of partiality. That is because this preference is awakened by a commitment to equality of worth in a context bedeviled by a systemic denial of it, armed with traditional discriminations and religious prejudices. The religion of the future will be characterized by a purposive partnership between God and human beings for the good of life in all its forms. This involves assuming responsibility for the earth. It will be at the same time informed by the realism that the universal needs to have a local habitation and a name if it is to be a significant reality. Let's find out more about it from the author himself. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Uh, greetings to all your viewers and uh, friends around the world particularly in the Middle East. Thank you, sir. So tell us more about the book. Um, what prompted you to come out with this book at a time like this? As also as a context to the book, can you tell us the difference between uh, religious religion versus spirituality? Yes, uh, the book has come into being in a very specific context. Uh, but that context is both Indian as well as global. We see, for example, the abuse of religion for political purposes around the world, particularly in the, in the January 6th episode in the United States, where religious um, primitivism was pitted against constitutional democracy. All these things are known to your viewers and therefore I will not go into details. Now, I find myself today, particularly as I live and work in the Indian context, burdened with a very special sense of responsibility to read the signs of the times. I believe that in India, we are going through worrisome times. Uh, at the same time, what makes it all the more worrisome is the fact that there is a generous general consensus, uh, general, uh, general conspiracy, if I may put it that way, to look the other way. And I consider this as an important aspect of general decay, that a people as a whole somehow come into an unwritten agreement to read reality as it is not. 
when evidence signs that should worry people stare them in the face, they look the other way and pre pretend that everything is hunky-dory and that somehow the end of it, end of it all will be a happy product. I mean, what little sense of history I have does not justify this willful denial of truth. Therefore, in times such as this, a person who reads the signs of the times comes under the obligation to tell it as it is. And that's as simply as I can put it. I'm trying to read the situation as it is so that an invitation is issued to my fellow uh, people, uh, fellow countrymen in the immediate context, but fellow human beings all over the world, to be truthful and alert in responding to what is afoot everywhere, uh, so that uh, we assume a greater sense of responsibility concerning the world that's now coming into being. So in that sense, this is a wake-up call to human beings all over the world. Now, the, the, the supplementary question that was included in your opening statement, um, what is the difference between religion and spirituality? Well, you see, in, in times of um, um, true spiritual awakening, they are the same. But in times of decay, they become exactly the opposite. And that's the strange thing about it. Now, religion, every religion began with a spiritual ferment. And in the early phases of the emergence and development of a religious tradition, you find that the emphasis was on humanity, what enriched humanity, particularly the universal values and ideals. And uh, overarching all this was the idea that all people are children of God. Therefore, we need to love and care for each other. Uh, and uh, there must be a general sense of accountability to God, particularly accountability for quality of life as well as the integrity of creation, all round responsibilities. But what happens when a spiritual tradition degenerates into organized religion is that this wider awareness is renounced and people are sort of trained and nurtured to get obsessed only with themselves. And when any person gets obsessed with himself or herself, he or she loses the capacity to relate in a healthy and responsible manner to the wider context. So you arrive at the feeling which is purely notional and in fact dangerous, that the world out there is full of enemies and that the best thing one can do for oneself is to hide oneself from that dangerous world. And where should one hide oneself? In the religious ghetto. So religion, this becomes a haven of escapism. And when a person or a community gets oriented to escapism, uh, individuals and groups become incapable of assuming responsibility, not only for the world at large, but even for themselves. So that a general sense of helplessness, bewilderment, uh, and even hopelessness comes into being. And people don't realize that all this is unnecessary and it happens so because of the unhealthy religiosity that has now taken hold of them. And therefore, there is a need in the religious context for people to be made aware of the need to be renewed in the original spiritual ferment with which it, it, it all began. And in that sense, 
This book is also a call to go back to the original spiritual wellspring of every religious tradition so that what is constructive, positive, and life-affirming in each spiritual tradition can be brought together and something like a shared spiritual universal human heritage can be enunciated in order to equip human beings to lead a meaningful, peaceful, and um, dignified life in the present time. Right. Um, now, apart from your religious involvement, sir, you're also known for your secular um, uh, activities. So as a secular leader, uh, particularly, uh, you're someone who's closely associated with uh, Swami Agnivesh, who's worked yes. against uh, you know, child labor, slavery, and all those things. You also advocate human rights and champion yes. the cause of justice. So yes. my, uh, my question is, are you able to find more spirituality in your secular involvements, or, uh, or is it while you're being a priest? Or which one is more fulfilling for you, working for secular causes or associating with the church? Well, uh... Uh, it's been my very special privilege, and it's, it, was, it proved to be also a very enriching experience to have an ever-growing involvement with the wider world. Usually, it is customary for priests to stay confined to their religious uh, constituencies, but also because I was active in the field of higher education, and I had some identity of being a public speaker, etc., a, a, a general thinker. Uh, and my concerns for human rights, personal uh, dignity, uh, justice, etc., all these issues, human rights issues. It took me beyond the confines of my religious community. And uh, I have benefited hugely. And I experienced it as a liberating experience to be involved in the world beyond religious boundaries. Now, uh, you asked me whether the secular world is superior to the religious world. Uh, I have to say that, that in my experience, it turned out to be. There, there are some reasons for it. And it's important that your viewers or those who listen to us today uh, become a little clearer about it. So the main difference I find between the religious sector and the secular sector is that whereas accountability is nil in the religious sector, in the secular or political uh, sphere, people have to be accountable. Now, for example, if you are a professional journalist, your professionalism is sustained by and guided by a fair degree of accountability to a particular system. Yes. Now, when it comes to religion, nobody is accountable to anybody. I mean, religious leaders are not accountable to anybody. Uh, and uh, there was a time when people believed that they were accountable to God. But that's only a notion, a pious notion. It doesn't have any bearing on reality. So the, the main issue here is that in the religious context, there, there is no accountability. And it is an obvious thing that where there is no accountability, people lose their balance. And unfortunately, this happens. The second uh, uh, difference, which is related to this is, that the secular world demands excellence of you. You can't, you can't survive in any area of service if you don't update your skills and if you don't improve yourself, if you don't deliver uh, and uh, increasingly better quality year after year. If you stagnate, you're fired. Whereas in the religious context, there is absolutely no emphasis on excellence. On the other hand, I would even say that in times of religious decay, if anyone tries to excel, that person comes under a shadow of suspicion. 
And in fact, he could get into a lot of trouble. The reason is very simple. In any constituency where mediocre people exercise total control, any sign of merit, any sign of promise is <clears throat> a promise makes people who are at the helm of affairs feel very insecure. <clears throat> in fact, uh, the, um, the, the, uh, the efficiency with which a person works or the radical, the capacity for radical thinking, uh, the ability to see, uh, understand things deeper than uh, they are understood. All these things make the uh, the custodians of status quo in religion feel very deeply insecure, and therefore there is a tendency in the religious context for everything to stagnate, and stagnation becomes the fertile breeding ground for corruption. And all these things take us. A toll on human stature. So a wide gulf opens up between the religious world and the secular world. And in this context, I have to admit, though a priest, I have to admit that it's far easier to work with dignity and freedom in the secular context than in the religious context, where one has to hold oneself in absolute and mindless subjection to the so-called religious authority who demand utter conformity mindless conformity to their own dictates. And these di dictates may have been inherited from generation to generation without any attempt to adapt them, uh, adapt them to the changing contours and context of time. So therefore, the tendency to perpetuate what has actually become irrelevant in the changing contours of time, the changing processes of time, becomes the sole religious merit. And th this becomes very oppressive. Yes, I have to agree with you that it is as of now, far easier and more dignified and rewarding to work if you're a talented person, a creative person in the non-religious sector than within established religions. Absolutely. Uh, uh, which brings us to another connected um, aspect. I mean, religious leaders nowadays are more interested in material pursuits. They're more keen yes, yes, on yes, wealth yes, creation, so to say. Yes, Whereas yes. you find business leaders infusing more spirituality into their day-to-day -day activities. That's right. Isn't there a, a dichotomy here? What do you think of uh, that? Uh, no, the, the, the dichotomy is only uh, in appearance. Mm -hmm. whereas, whereas these are inevitable consequences of the orientations that both these sectors have embraced for themselves. Let, let, me, let me explain what, what it means. Now, if you look at the business world, the commercial world, the professional world, as I said before, uh, everybody has to contribute one's best. Everybody has to justify one's presence through the increasing quality of one's output. Um, whereas in the religious context, because as I said again, as I said before, there is an ascendancy of the mediocre and there's a corresponding uh, exiling of the meritorious. Now, a, a completely contrary sign of merit has to be created. Now, if you are talented, if you are excelling, then there are products that speak of your excellence. And you get what is called professional satisfaction through your work culture and your output, right? Now, in a context like in religion, where there is no such scope, there is a vacuum. That vacuum has to be create uh, has to be filled with something. So 
the vacuum created by the absence of professional dignity and personal fulfillment and the joy of growing continuity through the good work that one does can only be filled in the religious context with more and more material achievement. So you, come, you, you stumble upon this most interesting contradiction. The religious leaders who take the vow of poverty actually show off a lot of wealth. In fact, the tendency to show off status symbols as of today is far stronger in the religious context than in the secular context. For example, if I am the company of, I, I, was, I, was, I was the principal of a college. Let me be very, very sort of factual. Now, my bishop in Delhi was astonished that I was using an old car. And in fact, he rang me up. He was also the chairman of the governing body. He said, why are you using an old, outdated car? We have a policy that the head of the institution changes his car once in three years. My car was already six years old. Uh, he had a fleet of six cars, the most expensive cars. Mine was an ordinary car. But I told him that I had no need to borrow personal importance from a jazzy car. My personal merit was more than enough for me to find accept in any society. Whereas for a mediocre person who happens to occupy a position of importance in a religious context, simply by default, default, uh, you know, like in the case of a Jewel story, a one-eyed leader in the land of the blind, right? So such a person needs to show off his importance, the fact that he matters. How in the world is he going to do? He can't do that through personal distinction. He can't do that through his creativity. He can't do it through his personal stature. He can't do it through his spiritual powers. The only way he can impress and mesmerize people is by showing off his wealth. Unfortunately, what makes it worse is that the people in the religious sector lack the spiritual discernment to understand that this amounts to a complete contradiction of the basics of spirituality. They also get impressed. So a trade-off happens between the religious leaders and the ordinary people in religion by which religious and spiritual merit are displaced, substituted with social symbols and this kind of rich and opulent way of life and other forms of corruption that go with it. Uh, and I don't want to go into details thereof. Mm -hmm. This is how absolutely, it happens. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. absolutely. Uh, and in that context, uh, do you think religion needs a, a spiritual revival or do you think there is a need to bring back reason into uh, religion? Absolutely. In fact, I believe that the corruption of religion began precisely when reason was exiled from religion. Now, if you go back to the early beginnings of any religion, you will find that reason was the most important thing, not blind faith. Now, since you and I share a particular faith, even if our readers don't, uh, our, our viewers don't, let me use an illustration. What made the emergence of, the, uh, of Christianity possible? The main emphasis of the teachings of Jesus Christ is on the duty to look at life in a reasonable manner, in a rational manner. And what the custodians of Judaism at that time were trying to do was to resist the onslaught of reason. Because in the religious establishment that they had created and were presiding over, there was no margin for reason. And because there was no margin for reason, reason which empowers people, reason which enables people to think independently, freely, and critically, they had to really create a culture of 
conformity, which had to be strictly enforced. That's how religion becomes oppressive. So Jesus Christ uh, uh, denounced the oppressive nature of Judaism. In fact, you find that religion all over the world is oppressive, oppressive for the thinking individual. If you're a blind conformist, willing and eager to surrender your reason at the feet of some religious leader or whatever, then you don't feel that oppression. But if you want to be true to yourself, you want to, want to be responsible for the decisions that you take, you want a better understanding of your own faith, then you get into serious trouble. Right? So one thing is absolutely certain, that is, reason was actually supremely important in the early stages of the emergence and development of every religious tradition. But in course of time, as the priestly class develops and takes complete control over the religious establishment, because they cannot really think afresh and take the religious uh, spiritual tradition forward, they create the impression that everything is a closed system. And therefore, any no amount of thinking is allowed into it. If you think individually, it becomes heretical, heresies destroy this beautiful thing called faith. And therefore, uh, uh, reason becomes an enemy. Now, you tell me, can human beings be human without the capacity to think? We are supposed to be homo sapiens. Right? What does it mean? Homo sapiens means animals that have the capacity to think. Can you imagine religion which is founded for the ennoblement of the human species coming to an absolute self-contradiction in which it is a crime to think rationally? That's a kind of that's a kind of utter degradation that has penetrated into this uh, this sacred sanctorum of human destiny because of the ascendancy of mediocre priesthood and the tyranny of priestcraft. And therefore, the urgent need of our times is to liberate people from the tyranny of priestcraft and priestly domination. And that was what Jesus was doing. And to equip and empower them to think rationally so that they become full-fledged human beings who can assume responsibility for themselves and for the world around them. The only way in which an individual can be equipped to be responsible and responsive to the world around is by developing the rational capacities. So if your rational capacities are crippled, you become totally dependent on blind faith and blind faith makes you vulnerable to manipulation by the religious clergy who then impose their baggage of superstition, religious obscurantism, etc., upon you and then exploit you to the hilt. And that is the reason why religion has to be remarried to reason and a reasonable faith has to be enunciated because that's precisely what every religious reformer in history attempted to do. But the tyranny of the priestly class was so powerful that they managed to eliminate the agents of religious reform. Right, uh, absolutely. Uh, so um, now, uh, exactly in your book, you've said this, that no religion has remained unchanged for any significant period of time, especially during periods of cultural shifts. 
Yes. There is strands of religiosity develop in response to the struggles of the soul to cope with the challenges of emerging realities. That's right. But a stage comes in the evolution of all religions when they suffer petrifaction. That point corresponds, according to Max Weber, to the rise of the priestly class. Absolutely. The service that priests do is that they turn religion into a closed system, hard yes. set against the need to change. Yes. Adherence to dogmatic religiosity makes its practitioners regressive. Spirituality nurtures an urge to progress towards perfection, but this very thing renders the sentinels of religious orthodoxy insecure and reactive. It is perceived as presaging an existential threat. So in that context, do you think the so-called guardians of the faith or the priests are contributing to the intolerance that exists in religion today, or is it the political class? What's your view there? Yes. Um, religions vary in their capacity for tolerance or in their penchant for intolerance up to a point. For example, it is universally agreed that polytheistic religions tend to be more tolerant because they are exposed to or they are sensitive to the variety and diversity there is in creation. Whereas monotheistic religions, because they tend to develop a kind of monochrome understanding of reality, to which they demand to, uh, a total conformity, they're inclined to be a little more intolerant. So there's a broad classification. But uh, there is something that further complicates this matter. Uh, first of all, as I said, when a religious tradition is hijacked by a priestly class, and the priestly class makes that religious tradition backward looking, The outcome of this backward orientation is utter intolerance in terms of anything which is progressive. Right. Now, I think it's important for our viewers to understand this a little more clearly. Now, all of us have to live. Our contexts today are different from the context in which our religious tradition was formed, say, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, right? Now, even a school child knows that in order to live effectively and meaningfully, one must develop the skill, the understanding, and the ability to relate to one's life context. Right? Now, the most absurd thing in religion is, this backward-looking religion is, well, you don't have to develop any understanding of your present predicament. All you have to do is repose your faith blindly in a set of dogmas that we have evolved for you. By the way, no dogma is based on scriptures. One of the most important things everybody must know is that dogmas are the creation of the priestly class. Every ritual is the invention of a priestly class. Every superstition is the creation of a priestly class. And the common purpose of all these things is to control and manipulate the people and keep them under subjection. So the, uh, the tendency, therefore, for the religious class, the priestly class, to keep the people away from a state of full engagement with their life context, which is necessary for their personal affirmation and fulfillment, is what makes religion a negative and retrograde influence. Now, I'm amazed that Jesus Christ understood it so perfectly 2,000 years ago, and therefore he said, religion is made for man, not man for religion. 
Now, that's one of the most revolutionary thing I've ever heard anyone say in the context of religion. Of course, he used the word Sabbath. Now, in the Jewish context, Sabbath, Sabbath was equal to religion. So if religion is meant for human beings, then religion has to grow alongside the human. Religion has to keep pace with human beings' historical journey and remain continuously sensitive to the emerging nuances of the human predicament in different ages. It cannot remain a closed system completely impervious to the human adventure in history. And therefore, any closed system of religiosity becomes a liability, a liability. And it is against this that we must create global awareness that if religion, I believe that religion can be made a source of help and inspiration for life, but not this kind of religiosity. Only when religion and spirituality become one and reason becomes the light of this new spirituality, is there any hope that this great heritage of humanity, which now has been turned into a liability, can once again be turned into an aid to living effectively and fruitfully? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, coming to India in the context yeah. of uh, you know uh, India, um, majority communalism we know is a danger. Yes. It has its pitfalls, yes. But what about minority communalism? How far ha have uh, minority communalism and minority appeasement contributed to the growth of majority communalism, particularly in India? Although there are issues of intolerance by religious majority groups in India, yeah. Yeah. we see that the majority groups are actually tolerant, open to interfaith dialogues and willing to hear it for the other side. What is your take or opinion on this? I fully agree with you that Hinduism, let's be very specific, Hinduism, has been for the, the, the greater part of its history a very tolerant faith. But this is not to say that it was always tolerant. For example, if you read Hindutva by Veer Sarvakar, which is a classic textbook of Hindutva, the, the Sankha ideology, he goes into an epic description of how the Sanatan faith succeeded in launching a crusade against Buddhism and wiped it out of India. So there was there were spells of religious intolerance even in the distant past, right? But these were aberrations. If you look at the general the genius, the general feature of uh, Hinduism, we can say that as compared to what's called Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, it is definitely more tolerant. So in the Indian context, I have no hesitation in saying that it was minority communalism that provoked majority communalism. And so much so, I can go back to say the 60s and 70s of the last century, when it was commonplace to hear the RSS uh, ideologues talking about the need to semiticize Hinduism. That is, to recast Hinduism in the mold of Christianity or Islam or Judaism. Why? Because they found that the practitioners of these three faiths were very militant, very, very committed, very zealous. And more than anything else, they realized that because these faiths were centrally organized, it was easy to politically mobilize the practitioners of these three faiths. So they said they firmly believed that unless and until Hinduism is reinvented in the mold of the Semitic religions, there, there is no hope 
either to achieve pan-Indian Hindu unity or to inject a new vitality or dynamism into the Hindu society. Now, um, uh, in the meanwhile, in the meanwhile, uh, I have to say that the religious leader, leaders of uh, especially Christianity and Islam conducted themselves with extreme irresponsibility. Now, there are various facets to this irresponsibility. Uh, the only thing I want to mention for the time being for want of uh, uh, limitations is that, you see, how do you relate to India? You are living as a faith community in India. And India is a constitutional democracy. Constitution provides a general framework for our thought and action. I have to say as someone who knows the whole picture inside out, that my community, as well as the Muslim community, did not try to relate to the Indian mainstream with a commitment to the constitutional democracy, the secular democracy that we were meant to be, or we tried to be. Both these communities related to India in terms of what they could get out of it. For example, we talked about minority rights. But we, we did not really take seriously our constitutional responsibilities. For example, the constitutional responsibility to cultivate a scientific temper and rational thinking. The constitutional responsibility to uh, abjure casteism. Both these communities are also infected by caste. So there are nine or 10 constitutional responsibilities mentioned in Article 51, Subarticle A, that's uh, you know, part of the uh, directive principles of state policy. And I can't say that my religious community, which I have taken very seriously, took any of these responsibilities seriously. We were all the time obsessed with ourselves, our own interest. And we thought that that was a very wonderful thing to do. And that is something today the Hindu society, the Hindu community has learned from us. Muslims did the same thing. So now the boot is on the other feet. Yeah, the boots are on the other feet. So therefore, we get worried. Now, the, 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 there's a difference between minority communalism and majority communalism. My, minority commun, communalism, communalism will always function within limits. Why? Because it lacks political power. Whereas majority communalism is in a position to equip itself very dangerously with political power. So that today, we, it is inaccurate to talk about majority communalism. I would say that we should talk about majority communal self-assertion. And when the majority community wants to assert itself over others, what happens, the unfortunate consequence is a, a, a faith develops in the efficacy of violence. So today, there is an unprecedented faith in the justice or justness and efficacy of violence, which means that the old faith in the arguments, dialogue, persuasion, liberal culture, tolerance, everything goes out. Once faith in violence comes about, that's why you have vigilantism. That's why you have that, the lynching of individuals and small groups. All these things indicate the fact that an unprecedented faith in violence is creeping like cancer into our society. And because it, is, it happens within this broad 
loose framework of majoritarian self-assertion, I believe it can have, unless it is controlled by effective and uh, visionary leadership at the top, it can have horrendous consequences. And in fact, this anxiety also lurks somewhere in the background of writing this book. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, it's easy to talk about all this, but what is the actual solution for putting religion right or to infuse more spirituality into religion? What is your opinion? For about 40 years, I, I thought I could function within my religion and try to reform it. Um, I thought I could uh, create a new awareness within my community. And my, I, I have to say that I worked very hard for it. But as years passed, and in fact, as decades passed, it became absolutely clear to me that it is impossible to reform a religion from within. And then I looked into the history of religious reform and found that there is really no example in history, absolutely no example in history, of a religion having been reformed. Uh, for example, Jesus tried to reform Judaism. What happened? He was crucified. And another religion had to come into being. Judaism was not reformed. Okay? Now, uh, Max, uh, sorry, uh, um, Luther. Hmm? Uh, Luther tried to reform the church that existed, then the Catholic church, right? What happened? He was cast out. And instead of Catholicism being reformed, Protestantism came into being. Catholicism stayed exactly like it was. Buddhism was a reform movement within Hinduism. Buddha was an, an imminent example of an attempt to bring rational thought into religiosity and the emphasis on the need to engage with worldly realities. And he had his own understanding of it. He did not succeed. For example, he wanted to reform Hinduism of animal sacrifice. He said, look, God is compassionate. And you're trying to worship God through animal service, which is an act of cruelty. How can the God of compassion be honored through cruelty? Now, it's very simple logic. But what was the, what was the result? Buddhism got uh, stigmatized as an enemy of Hinduism, and it was eliminated from the land of its birth. So take it. Any way you like, go to any example in history, you'll find that my observation is absolutely right. It is impossible to reform religion. Once religion acquires an orientation to covetousness and corruption, it is impossible to reform that religion. Therefore, where do we go and, and what, what can we do about it? I believe that now individuals will have to assume responsibility for themselves. Paradoxically, I, I believe it's a good thing that religions have become so corrupt. And I'm also grateful that COVID has come because COVID has effected a delinking between individuals and religious establishments. Now for two years, people have not been attending formal worship in places of religion. And through this COVID enforced separation between religious establishment and the life of individuals, People in their millions all over the world have made a significant discovery. The discovery is that this huge gigantic religious establishment that they have been financing is actually irrelevant to, to their day-to-day -day life, to their life struggles, their needs, etc. So uh, I, I think an unprecedented opportunity has now come into being, and that is to equip individuals 
to assume responsibility for themselves. No religious establishment is going to take care of you. Religious establishments, establishments would only exist for themselves. They're, now, people went through a lot of suffering, a lot of trauma in the last two years. You think of a single religious establishment in any religion anywhere in the world, responding with compassion, sensitivity, and responsibility towards the suffering of individuals and groups. You can't think of a single instance. I can challenge anybody to prove me wrong. Therefore, it is now crystal clear to me, and I'm sure increasingly this will become clear to people all over the world, that the time has come for people to assume responsibility for themselves. The good thing is that they can because everything needed to take care of yourself is already available to you. You don't need a very dramatic special revelation. You don't need the appearance of special and dramatic uh, prophets and saviors. Everything needed for your uh, leading as responsible, meaningful, spiritually enlightened, God-oriented life is there. For God's sake, try to investigate, explore your own spiritual traditions. Go back to the truth. Go back to the essence of your own religious, uh, not religious, spiritual traditions. Then grow in the understanding of it. Practice it. And through the practicing of these religious values and ideals, you will find that you experience a personal transformation. The quality of your life changes dramatically. Your personal stature becomes something unprecedented. And you become a blessing in the life of many people. And that is what I call spiritual enlightenment. That's what I call heaven upon this earth. And unfortunately, all this obscurantist, superstitious, priest-dominated religiosity has only shut our eyes to these glorious prospects. Now is the time. An unprecedented opportunity has come knocking at our gates for us to begin a new chapter in our spiritual journey through uh, history. And I believe that um, um, people all over the world will wake up to it. And I pray that the small contribution that I have made in order to make people aware of this possibility will reach the different uh, 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 segments of people, different corners in the world, and will create the due awareness, which would then lead to a new beginning in human history. And this is my great hope. Absolutely. Um... Sir, I'd love to discuss more. There's so much we haven't yeah, sure. spoken about, but yeah, uh, yeah. we are running out of time. I hope we can come together to discuss the book in more detail sometime. Yeah, yeah. I'd be very happy yeah. to do that. I'd be very happy to do that. Yeah. And I want to, I want to uh, conclude by uh, uh, con um, conveying my great appreciation for you. And beyond that, I wish all of our viewers a very happy, meaningful, and blessed 2022. And I hope that 2022 would be for everyone, a year of new beginnings. Absolutely. Thank you very much for taking the time for this chat, sir. Wish you all the very best in your future endeavors. Have a great day and a lovely 2022. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much for making it possible. Thank you. Thank you.